When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. My name is Jolie Ho, and you are listening to the Psychology Channel. I'm very excited to introduce Dr. Bacia Mesquita to discuss her latest book, Between Us, How Cultures Create Emotions. Dr. Mesquita is a social psychologist and affective scientist. She is a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Leuven in Belgium, as well as the director of the Center for Social and Cultural Psychology in Leuven as well. Dr. Mesquita also completed postdoctoral work at the University of Michigan in the United States, where she was part of the research group on culture and cognition that has played a key role in the start of further research on cultural psychology. In Dr. Mosquito's book, she asks us to reconsider our emotions through the lens of culture and relationships. By showcasing both rigorous research studies and different personal stories, she takes a deep dive into how culture shapes how we experience emotions. Bacha, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Jolie. As someone who has lived across various cultures and often reflects on the differences between them, I was really intrigued and drawn to the premise of your book and really excited to read more about it. And I was wondering what inspired you to write this book? It's hard to sum that up in one sentence, but I think what really inspired me is um, at the time I was living in Amsterdam and I lived with um, a lot of different cultures. There were, were a lot of immigrant cultures and there seemed to be some differences in emotions, um, but yet the, um, the psychology that we had at that point was in the, in the 80s, uh, all pointed to uh, similarities. And so my first question was really, and, and that was the question of me and my advisor at the time, Nico Freida, was, is there anything about emotions that is different? And so it was a very theoretical question. And how can we explain that emotions look so different if, you know, all we know from psychology is that they're universal, basically? Yeah, and that actually lends really well to what I was wondering about and, and what you explain in the beginning of the book is you describe in the early chapter some of the earlier work on emotions where, like you said, a lot of it was based on similarities or geared towards this idea of emotions being 
hardwired or universal. And you also mentioned some famous work by Paul Ekman and colleagues and, and other researchers at the time. And this seems to be the general assumption that a lot of people have emotions, that they're universal, and also that at their core, um, experienced in the same way by all of us. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about why this may not be the case. Yeah, I mean, the real question would be, why would it be the case? What, what evidence do we have that it is the case? But I think why it would not be the case, I mean, I, you know, there, there are many reasons to think it's not the case. Um, one of them is that we actually, when we looked at, let me, let me proceed that by saying that I think, you know, that Paul Ekman should be credited, was one of the people to be credited with making the topic of emotions researchable. So when I'm saying what is what I do not like about the research or why I don't think the research is conclusive, I'm, I'm standing on a giant's shoulders, right? It's not, not at all meant to be um, respectless. Um, but, you know, in, in hindsight and, and 50 years later, I think we can say that um, what he did was, what he and his colleagues did was show pictures of still faces, um, have people pair them with a list of emotion words and infer from the fact that they chose the emotion word from the list of six that was, you know, most likely inferred from the fact that they did that above chance that there were universal emotions. And, you know, I just don't think that, and, and I, it's just, it's not just me, but I don't think that is, that conclusion is warranted. One of the reasons, there's a lot of work um, initiated by Jim Russell, I think, where, um, where you see that the less cues you give people for the answers, the more variation there is in how people perceive those faces. So that's, that's for starters. Um, it also seems that the words themselves um, uh, present a certain context. So people look at the face and, you know, they know that you want, you as a researcher want them to choose an emotion word. If you ask them without any context, they can also say that this person wants to yell at you or this person is not going to be happy or this person is going to leave everything as it is. Um, you know, so, so one of the, um, you know, Jim Russell and, um, and Fernandez, Miguel uh, Fernandez uh, dolls have done these, uh, have, have, done, have made this really nice uh, chapter where they say, you know, Obviously, people recognize something in those faces. It's not that they're arbitrary, arbitrary configurations, but it's not at all clear that what they recognize is uh, is actually an emotion. And you know, to to link it to the um, to the cultural work, I think nobody really asked. So people translated the words. So anger would be in my in my uh, culture would be both sides. This is the are the two languages that I know the best, but nobody actually did the work of were those two words referring to the same phenomena. So you know, literally, we didn't know. We knew that people connected 
the same pictures with maybe the translations of the words, but we didn't know to what extent those words um, translated. So I think there's a lot of reasons to um, to think that what those ex- what those initial experiments did was not to uh, prove that there were universal emotions. Now, of course, it's not just the face research, but let me turn it around and say, what is it that we really talk about when we talk about emotions? And we, you know, we usually do not talk about, you know, the, the, the Western idea in any case is that if you could see through the skull that the emotions would be there, firing or not firing, but they would be there. And they would always be the same. They would maybe be just elicited and firing or not you know, or not elicited, but that's a little bit like the movie um, Inside Out, where those little figurines live. Um, but we actually, we don't have any evidence that that's the case. And what, in, in fact, when you look at what people refer to when they refer to episodes of anger is really an event, an initial response by somebody, usually another an, another person or other people responding to that initial respo- response. Um, and so emotion, what we talk about when we talk about emotions is usually an episode, an, 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 an inter, a social episode, an interaction. Now, once you see it that way, the question is really, why would that be similar across cultures? Because not the same situations happen not the same initial responses happen. When those same initial responses happen, they don't have the same meaning in different cultures. So other people respond differently uh, to them. So the the course of the episode is going to be different. And so what we talk about when we talk about what, what you can compare emotion words with or emotion labels or concepts with is probably best compared with um, something. And, you know, my... Um, Somebody in my lab, Katie Human and her colleagues, um, did the words the work that probably you talk about something like an abstract concept. So an emotion is like a word like justice. We have an idea of what it entails, but will really what we the meaning of of justice is inferred from the many episodes that we have called just. And so in the same way, I and others would say what you mean when you say um, this person is anger or ang- angry or there is anger in this situation is really um, referring to a category of all the instances of all the interactions that you would call anger. And we know that the cause of anger and the meaning of anger is different across cultures. Now, just to go one step back um, to, the, um, to the facial um, research, um, we did some research. I mean, m- people have varied on the on the paradigm, but I think it's worth noting that even the paradigm of showing a single face without a context, with no other people around, is already a choice of what you look at. And so what I tried to say in the book is it's not a coincidental choice. It's actually a cho- choice that coincides with how psychologists and many people in the West conceptualize emotions, namely as something that's going on within uh, within a culture. 
When we show um, in research with uh, Taka Masuda and Phoebe Ellsworth and others, when we show Japanese people a face in the context of other faces that have also have emotions, then Japanese de determine the emotion of that middle face by also looking at the other faces. So what you can say, actually, if you do the same experiment, if you do it in, in America, then people, uh, regardless of whether there are other faces, they look at the central face and say this, what this person is feeling. So it seems that the whole paradigm that Ackman started from is a paradigm that, um, that models the way that Western people, or at least American students, um, perceive emotions more than it models the way that people in many other contexts um, infer emotions. It's even more complicated, even with Western people, when you also show context and sometimes the, the information of the context trumps the information of the, of the face. So it's, it's more, we, we are much more nuanced in our, our knowledge anyway. Um, but also as a, as a cultural paradigm, and I'm mentioning it because I think it's important that, of course, in part, what you find is what you how you design the experiment. And much of what we have done in psychology, I think generally, um, but certainly in emotion psychology, has started from an idea, but probably also the practice of how we do emotions in the West. And so part of, what, part of our findings can be uh, explained by having, uh, having brought people into a situation that simulated um, the way you know, people experience it in the West by yourself, uh, individuals um, separated. So I can say more about that, but I'll leave it at that for now. Yeah, thanks for that. There, there's so much there in what you just said. And I think just going off of your last point, like that's not even something I'd really thought about in those initial facial experiments, how even the design of those experiments are come from maybe a certain cultural lens or perspective where you would be zoning in on someone's singular face and maybe trying to determine what that particular person is feeling. And, and it is quite decontextualized, at least in those um, earlier studies there. So that's really fascinating to hear more about that history and yeah, it's where really design come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really decontextualized. And if I want to, if I can add one more thing is what we ask people there is to make a mental inference, right? We ask them, I mean, we basically say, you need to know from how they look, what they feel. And even mental inferences are more likely to be made in some cultures than in other cultures. So whether you describe behavior or interpret behavior as a sign of what's going on in the mind or within a person or, or describing it in terms of a mental state is very different across cultures. So, so in more than one way, this, this paradigm was really modeled um, by what we know in Western cultures. You make a mental inference on the basis of one person's behavior. So in, in many ways, I think this, you know, this simulated the Western, the Western perception of emotion model. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and from there, we begin to move into, okay, then what is maybe one way that we can conceptualize these emotions in this cultural context, in this social context? And um, in your book, you introduced two different 
acronyms to describe these different ways of thinking about emotions. Um, and just to um, briefly let our listeners know, so one of these acronyms that you um, included in your book is that of MINE emotions. Um, so M-I-N-E, where that stands for emotions being mental, inside the person, and essentialist. And that is contrasted against um, ours emotions, so O-U-R-S, um, where emotions are outside the person, relational, and situated. And I know you started to touch on this a little bit, um, but I'm wondering if you could share um, with our listeners what the key differences are between mine and ours emotions and how you were led to this way of conceptualizing emotions between cultures. Yeah, for this for this sophisticated audience, I would say that there aren't ours and mine emotions, but there are ours and mine models to emo- uh, to describe emotions. So that they're really, uh, again, we don't want to essentialize those, but they're lenses through which we can look at emotion. And I, what I would say is that um, even in cultures where mind emotion, where the mind model is foregrounded, we do have something like ours. Um, but what I what um, I think that the the model that we talked about that emotions are primarily an experience within the person, um, and that they're always the same. Now I I don't know if the essentialist if they're always the same. If you can even say that for Western cultures, because. Um, I don't think anger, I really don't think that anger at the state of the world is the same as anger at my child's bad behavior or is the same as anger at my partner who is, you know, not giving me enough attention. So I don't, I don't think that those, that anybody would say that anger in each of those moments is, is the, the same. But the other aspects of emotions, I think it's a matter of, of emphasizing. So I do think that emotions are, in most cultures, have a mental state attached to it. But there are cultures where that is the, the definition of an emotion, that you have that mental state. And in some cultures, it can co-occur, but the, the emotion is not is really not defined um, by, by the mental state, but it's more defined by what's happening in the environment, what, what the behavior is, and what the event was. So outside and inside the person, I think inside is an emphasis on on mental states. Outside is an emphasis on what emotions do between people. Um, And so you could say, um, you know, being angry is mostly letting you know that I'm not accepting your behavior. Now, arguably, that's also what people who are focused on the mental feeling do. And there is some research by, for example, Herman van Cleef and his colleagues, where he shows that anger anger has this, um, that people, other people read anger as having exactly this relational message. Namely, this person is not going to accept it. And he looks in, um, in the context of... Um, of uh, business negotiations and sees that if a business partner is angry, that people do make more concessions in the in the deal because they think this person is not going to accept it. To the contrary, when people are happy, um, people make fewer concessions than if there was no emotion because they think, oh, this person likes it the way it is, so we don't need to make any concessions. So I would argue that even in cultures that 
that focus on the mental feel, feeling as a defining feature of emotions, it's not unimportant what emotions do between people. Um, and so in that sense, it's a model more than, than, um, than really, it's different, uh, it's a different, um, different highlights more than that the phenomenon itself is different. Having said that, um, it actually makes a big difference in a lot of emotional processes, how you think about it. And one example is that if you think that emotions are situated, so meaning that an emotion is always um, mostly shaped by the situation in which it occurs, or saying it another way, that we need to feel the way that is expected um, by, you know, the role that we have in this society, the expectations of other people, um, that is that our emotions should be dictated by the, by the circumstances or the norms that, that prevail for those circumstances. People who grow up in a culture that thinks about emotions that way also manage their emotions differently. And so there are different different studies showing that when you assume that emotions do not, that emotions are always adjusted to the situation, you, um, you actually have less problems suppressing the, suppressing your feelings or shaping them in a way that they fit the situation. And in fact, your feelings um, follow the behavior more than if you think that emotions are authentic, that they come from within and that they need expression. So this, this um, Freudian idea of catharsis of, or the emotion idea, like emotions inside that need to come out and that need to be expressed. Um, so, it's, so in cultures where the idea is that emotions are inside and need to come out, it's harder for people to adjust their emotions to the circumstances. Um, than it is for people who think about emotions to begin with as created by the circumstances. So we do find real differences. And so one of the examples, we have lab, uh, lab experiments that show that, but we also have research in the real world. And for example, um, uh, Chinese um, service workers who need to be happy uh, do not suffer from burnout when they need to do emotion labor. Uh, we find that service workers in in the United States and and probably Europe do suffer from 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 negative consequences when they um, try to to moderate their feelings um, and and have them meet the expectations of the environment. So it also has some some real how you think about those emotions also shapes some of the processes that we're interested in. So this is one of them. Um, the other is of course. If you think about emotions as going on between people, what we saw in the face experiment, then of course, if you look at, if you're asked to to say what this middle person is feeling, you look at what all the people in the situation are feeling because it's something that goes on between people. And so that's what we see, that emotion perception, emotion regulation, feelings, consequences of emotions um, can be and are uh, affected by how, whether your culture emphasizes or you emphasize more of a mind model of emotions or more of an hours model of emotions. 
I'm making it um, more complicated for your um, for your sophisticated audience, but I wouldn't say there my there are mine emotions and there are ours emotions, but I would say that cultures differ substantially in what the what the dominant emphasis is on these models. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you elaborated a bit more on that because one of the things that I found myself wondering, and I'm sure that you've received this question before too. And I know before we started recording, we were chatting a little bit about different research approaches or traditions. And um, we started talking about like the cognitive behavioral approach or tradition is whether these emotions that are experienced as different across different cultures are different in their internal experience or whether the situations that are being responded to, or maybe the appraisals of situations that are being responded to are what is causing these differences. So that was something I'd been curious about. And um, so I, I'm, I'm glad you elaborated a bit more. So what, yeah. There. So what is the difference between the, you know, if you, if, if you have different appraisals, if you, for example, have the appraisal that, you know, what happened, what just happened to me, I may not like, but it's not so important compared to what is needed in this situation. Of course, that's a different different appraisal. Or, you know, I'm, I may have been a little bit offended, but this is an elderly person and I need to have respect. I mean, at the moment you start perceiving the world with this different perspective on top, your appraisal changes. So, and of course your emotion changes. And Appraisal theorists, in principle, think that there, there are, you know, as many emotions as there are configurations of appraisals, right? So I don't think that two perspectives really are mutually uh, exclusive. I think if you take appraisals theory seriously and say they're just different ways in which the world can appear to you, you know, in which another way of saying it is in which you make meaning of the world. There is another aspect that I haven't that I haven't touched, but you know, I think appraisal theorists are a little bit individualistic in that the assumption is that individuals at every moment, again by themselves, appraise what this situation means to them. Now, that I think is underestimating the role of environment where a lot of situations just have meaning or get meaning from the fact that everybody around you gives, it, gives them meaning. So I, I think it's given the individual a little too much influence. Um, you cannot complete, there is a shared reality. Um, you, you cannot completely make up your own reality. Um, in, in fact, I would say that we live we live our lives through shared realities, um, but so, but but still, even if the meaning comes is largely comes from how we make it together or how it has been made before even you came, just what it means in your culture to experience something like this, it's still the meaning that an individual and their environment give to an event that would determine how you feel, right? And there, and there are nuances, there are, um, there are many variations in those appraisals, however they come to be. 
Mm. And since we've gotten ourselves onto the subject of of meaning, um, something else that you also uh, spend a little bit of time addressing in your book is also about how we communicate these meanings with each other, and also about the role of language in how we experience emotions. And I know you touched on this a little bit just now when we were talking about the uh, facial experiments um, that these words that they were being matched to in some ways were inherently already altered in some way because of how they were translated, maybe. I was wondering if you could speak a bit more to the role of language in in emotions. Yeah, it's a really big question, of course, but um, I did touch on it a little bit. Um, I, I don't think... You know, I don't think we're talking about language. I think the reason language has been out of focus for so long is that many emotion psychologists did think of emotions as those essences that were that didn't change. And so if everybody comes with the same however many emotions, then then the matter of labels is a peripheral matter, right? It's you know, however you whatever however your language expresses it, and um, I think it's a little more than that. I think we uh, what language does is categorizing the world that we live in. Um, but there are two things that are variable there. One is the world that we live in. So what kinds of emotional experiences we have. From, from the start of our lives to, you know, and in our cultures. And the other is um, how the categorization of those events happens and what is foregrounded. Um, and there's, also, there's always this question, of course, there is a, there's even my advisor, Nico Freire, wrote about it, that if you, if you choose a different word, what you choose is a different is to highlight different characteristics of the situation. So you can call this more or less the same situation, an, a situation of anger or of sadness. And so what you highlight in one case is what you what you highlight in both is that what happens is not desirable. What you highlight when you're when you say you're angry is your entitlement and and possibly some of your power to change this situation. You can say that by labeling it ang- angry, you make the situation so, right? It's not just describing, it's not just describing what is already there. You highlight something that can be highlighted, but in doing it, you're also making meaning. So that's that's one part. I think that that language is is used often to to play the part, um, you know, if I play the part of being of entitlements, then then I'm calling on this category that invokes my entitlement. I cannot always do that, by the way. Your context and your position determines whether you do that and other people will, will uh, accept it. Because sometimes, you know, a child can come, be angry or... You know, in, in former times, a woman could be anger, angry and it was inappropriate and people would just deny the claim. Um, but so that's that's in part that that in, that words have an active role in creating the situations. Words also make use of words also are categories of experiences and they're categories of experiences that you have. So you you literally if you want to 
say it, you know, this is very similar to the idea of predictive coding. You literally uh, draw on previous experiences and you and you see if they apply to a new experience. And in a way, what you do when you use a label is to say, what are all the instances that, you know, that happened there? And can I find an instance that looks like it? Words or concepts also have all the possibility of, of I, I call it, of finishing, finishing the episode. So you can say words also have scripts, right? If, it's, if in the beginning of an episode you say, oh, it's like this situation, it also tells you what the, it tells you to predict what other people are going to do. It also tells you what you how you might respond, or what the most proper response, or the most what what do you call it, the most suitable response is. So so in that way, it it sort of it feeds you experience from before, um, and it and it directs you towards what you can do. Um, and words, of course, are not just. Um, are not just charged with individual experiences, but they also, in the book I say, they have uh, a repertoire of cultural stories. That's a little simplified, of course, but there is there are some meanings attached to words that are probably cultural and that you see around you. If, you're, if your culture thinks of, a, of anger as, I mean, basically, not maybe a desirable emotion, but basically an okay emotion to have in a relationship, then that's, then it becomes a very different emotion. And if you, um, your culture thinks that anger is disruptive and inappropriate and childish, which, you know, there or, or the biggest sin there is like, um, in some forms of Buddhism, it's considered to be. Um, so your, your, the culture also, um, fills you know, gives the, the the label or the concept a lot of connotations that that then color your experience. Mm, so I'm hearing a lot of the fact that it will go both ways. Um, that for a lot of these ideas, yes, yeah, absolutely, mm. it will go both ways. Yeah, mm. yeah, and and language is, I think, a tool to organize experiences, both past experiences and future experiences. And it's also a tool, and that's not unimportant, it's a tool in which we communicate experiences with each other, right? We, in a culture, language is a, is a tool of, is, is a, a huge way in which we share experiences without really, exper- without really sharing them. Because mm-hmm. I cannot look into your hat, but I... I share, or to the extent that I share language practices with you, um, you know, it's it's as if I were sharing your experiences. Mm-hmm. We can fool each other. I don't I don't know that we <laughs> really, but we can fool each other. Yeah, and um, we were also talking about how emotions come from these episodes, or are made up from these different experiences that we have that inform us um, whether an emotion fits or is suitable, like you were saying, for a certain context. And a lot of that is based on our past experiences. And I'm wondering how um, the discrepancies in how different cultures might experience or treat key emotions um, influence children as they grow up and also just development um, as well. 
I was going to say um, when you said they um, shape people shape our past experience. Of course, people also co-shape experiences, right? And in, in childhood, that's very clear. That's because children don't have emotions. I mean, they have feelings, but they don't have emotions. So what, what parents teach them in different ways um, is real. It's very clear that the parents are involved in experiencing the emotions. So what do people, what do parents do? They, I think they highlight what events are worth having emotions about. So they say, you know, they highlight, and in the book I describe how I would praise my son a lot um, for really irrelevant things. But, you know, the, the idea of feeling proud of yourself was really, was really um, focal in, in my child rearing. But of course, there are many cultures in which that is not the case, where it's much more important for a child to experience when they're falling short of the norms or uh, when they're disobedient or when they're um, for a child to be calm, for example, not excited. So we, we have, we, we taught, we teach our children different uh, experiences to single out and, and pause at. What we also teach our children is, um, I mean, exactly what we categorize their experiences. So we say, you're angry or she is angry um, or, you know, we, so we say, we basically say, this is the category, this is what you should look at. And what we also do, which is really powerful is we respond or don't respond as caregivers. So, you know, the, um, there is this uh, work by Heidi Keller, a developmental psychologist who, uh, who looks at infants and their, their caregivers, mostly mothers. And she, she shows that even really early on, you know, some mothers respond to when the baby whimpers even, and some mothers don't. They, and, but they also want their baby to be calm. And so they're, they're nursing their babies. They're, um, you know, they're, they're doing everything to make their babies calm, but they're certainly not eliciting their baby's feelings. They're also not particularly responding when the other than, uh, making the baby calm again when their babies uh, make noise. You know, similarly with somewhat older kids, there, there, um, there are cultures where people completely ignore the anger of their children because it's inappropriate, it's childish, and they shouldn't. There are cultures where people um, give in to their angry children thinking that they're still immature and that it will come. And there are cultures where people are taking their children in a way very seriously and either either say, you know, either respond to their, not just not just calming them or, or giving in, but just saying, taking it seriously as a claim to, to change or become angry themselves, the mothers, which means also, you know, taking it up against your, your children's will. So it's very different responses that ultimately shape how ki kids learn to do their emotions. Um, and what we see is that these, these differences can almost always be explained by what kind of child do they really want. So the, the mothers who nurse their children and who respond to every first whimper they want their children to be calm because a calm child is a child that you don't have to 
pay attention to and you can work alongside this child. Um, the mothers who give attention to their children's anger or protest are the mothers who, who then think that children's will and their own initiative and what they think about the world is really important. So they want a child that's in control of the world, that takes, uh, that is empowered, that takes initiative. So what we see is that these different ways of responding, it's not that the, that the caregivers would be able necessarily to articulate what their goal is, but what we can see is that emotion socialization um, almost always is a way to cultivate a child that fits into a cultural ideal or that can function. Another way of saying it is to you socialize your child's emotions so that they can function in their social world as a social, as an emotionally competent person. Mm-hmm. And then as they go on to experience these emotions, they're then also additionally shaped by, of course, that initial parenting context and, and yes. that feedback that they receive. And then it's, it goes on to um, depend more on maybe the interaction, the particular relationship they find themselves in or the culture that in which that emotion is taking place. And I am really curious to hear more about your thoughts on how these differences in emotional experience interact with a certain culture's values. So one of whether this is positive emotions or negative emotions, um, one of the examples that stood out to me in in the book is how you were talking about how this American notion of happiness is very unique to America and to the United States and um, how uh, maybe some other cultures, more negative emotions such as um, shame might be seen as this idea that you are being humble or that you you know your place or that it is a sign that you have to change something about your image. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering how, yeah, these emotional experiences shape what a certain culture values or places emphasis on. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's bi-directional, right? Mm. So it's, um, there are different ways of, of answering your question. One is to say what, you know, a good person can be a person who is happy. And, and I think, you know, um, America or middle-class white America, I mean, we, sh- we shouldn't overgeneralize there either, but happiness or the excited kind of happiness is what makes you a good person. And why that is, because a happy person has a lot of initiative and knows what they want and they're not too dependent on others. Um, Whereas a good person can also be a person who fits right into the environment. And of course, being aware where you fall short and being able to to correct that, um, you know, is is of great value there. And it's not that in those cultures, I wouldn't say in those cultures, being humble is a great experience or being ashamed is a great experience, far from it. But a good child in those cultures is a child that knows shame. It's not a child that is shameless. Is really a problem in those cultures. So now the other the other thing that you may have been referring to is that even, I mean, I don't think that anybody would say that shame is the ultimately good feeling. But shame is a feeling that is useful if you want to be a good person. But there are also differences in what people find the most, what what the emotions are that they strive for. And um, 
you know what is what is a good emotion even what 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 how would you how would you prefer to feel and that's uh you know a lot of the work uh of my by my colleague Jeannie Tsai uh has been about about that which is you know what is your ideal emotion and she finds that whereas um european americans want to be excited happy um that most Asian Americans want to be Asian Americans and, and, and East Asian people in East Asia want to be more calm. And so even if you talk about what feels good, um, the what, feel, what feels good is different. So, so there are two things. What do you strive for and what feels good? And what feels good, even what feels good is different. So you can, and I don't think only between... Um, probably not only between cultures in the sense of, of, of national identities or, or ethnic groups. I even think that my 20-year-old self um, was more focused on having excited happiness than my 60-year-old self is. And so you can see how, you know, what you strive for is really, is really different. Do you want to have new things? Do you want to have, be, do you want to be in control or do you want to you know, have uh, make sure that your relationships are stable, that you can accommodate. Um, so, so there too, you 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 can link the ideal emotions to values that people have or or tasks that people give themselves. Um, but it's a slightly different um, way of looking at at cultural differences. Nobody would say shame is what they really want to feel, but they would say shame is what you need to be a good person. But people would say that calm is really not calm uh, or, or not being excited, but just feeling good is the, is the right emotion to have, is the emotion that they would strive for. And in fact, when, um, when Jeannie, and her, Jeannie Tsai and her colleagues showed, um, I think, Taiwanese children a face of a very big smile, um, with a very big smile and a, a sort of a, a modest, calm smile, and she said, what is most happy? The, the Taiwanese kids said that, um, I think they said that they were both equally happy, but the, the, Amer the European American kids said that the, the big smiley face was more happy. So, so there are really um, differences in the idea of what is a good emotion too, what it, what, it is, what, what it is that you would like to feel if you had all the choice in the world and you were in charge of what you were feeling. Um, so even there, we differ. Mm -hmm. And so we spent some time now talking about uh, how these differences might come to be. And a lot of our conversation has talked about the bi-directionality of these different ideas. And I'm wondering for, you know, the world is increasingly becoming much, much more multicultural, um, people of all sorts of different backgrounds coming together. And I'm wondering about for all of us who are interacting with one another, we might begin to now have this awareness, uh, especially after reading your book, that uh, we all experience emotions a little bit differently. Maybe that depends on um, our past experiences, our cultures that we've lived in. And I'm wondering how we can interact with one another um, and how we can um, attend to another person's 
context so that we can better understand their emotions. Um, is that or if that is the goal or, or not even? So I'm, I'm wondering about your thoughts on that. Yeah, my thoughts on that are exactly what you say: is that we can be curious on about each other, each other's context, on what is important for each other, and what what the context looks like, what the emotions might mean, um, and that in that way, I I think I call it resonating. But you you can resonate with somebody's feelings without really having them. So I can I can think, um, you know, I can try to understand what it means to be ashamed um, in that context and why Taiwanese parents would want their children to be ashamed or even what it might feel like to be ashamed in that context without ever wanting to raise my child that way, but just understanding it. So I think, you know, my, my feel, my my thoughts about it are more and more that we need to be humble, that we can't just infer from, you know, for, for the researchers audience that you talk to, that we can't just infer from one context how emotions work for all the other contexts, um, that we need to, and, and I will say I haven't always done that in my career, but that we need to take our data really seriously, that if people say, um, you know, they see in that person, they don't see sadness, but they see a person who might be about to cry that we don't say, oh, that's basically saying sadness, but that we take those data seriously. Um, and in, in daily life, I think it really is trying to be humble about your own knowledge about another culture, trying to find out what is at stake for other people what they're feeling without presuming it, um, what it means, what that means for their behavior, what they think, the what they anticipate the consequences will be. So I'm in in my book. I'm making because that's what every um, trade book publisher wants you to do is to to give uh, your readers a tool. Now, of course, you know I haven't tested that tool. I'm giving that tool at the end of my book. I am actually doing research now to see if, because that's really what I suggest, is that if you know the junctures of cultural differences in emotions, that you could probe for those differences and try to understand where people from another. So if, if I know that emotions come about for different reasons, there are different things at stake in different cultures, then maybe that helps me. I'm, I'm just trying to see how it helped me to understand emotions from different cultures. I think it helps me understand emotions from different cultures if I know that the values, the kinds of things that you asked about, the values are different. What it means to be a good person in that culture is different. How, did needs, how emotions need to be expressed is different. The language is different. So I'm I'm just looking at the kind of junctures of cultural difference and see if in, in this new study, if, if you tell people about those differences, if they have more way of communicating about them. But that's really a grant that we just got and, and are trying to test. Um, mm-hmm. it's, what, it's what anthropologists um, describe they do. Is they The word resonating that I use comes from anthropologists where they say, what, how you understand other the emotions of uh, people from other cultures is not 
by empathy. It's not that I try to imagine what I feel if I were in your place. First of all, I may never be in your place. And also, I may not have the same emotions as you have with your history and your cultural environment and, and your knowledge and your, your goals. But if I understand the, that history, that perspective, um, that, that culture, maybe I can approximate how you're feeling and what you think, how you think you have to behave or respond to it. So I think that should be the goal. And I think we need to be much more modest about what we know based on our own experiences. Um, yeah, I'm really glad you you brought that up because one of the passages in the book that really stood out to me was about, uh, I think it was probably in one of the later chapters when you wrote a little bit about empathy and how you drew this distinction between, like there's a difference between um, saying or thinking that you're empathizing with a person um, if you're taking their perspective, but imagining how you would feel in that situation, that's not quite the same as being able to understand or empathize with how that person would be feeling given all their past experiences, that specific context, um, and yeah. that there's a bit of a distinction. Ex- absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, also empathy, there was, a, there was an analysis of how empathy is used in, a, in, in emotion re- review issue. Um, and and that was a it was a really um, clear classification. I mean, some people use empathy to mean exactly what I mean, which is a cognitive empathy. You try to understand what the circumstances are, but some people use the word empathy as really trying to project your feelings, and I think that kind of empathy is not helpful. And so, you know, my conclusion is that it would be better to ban the word empathy because it it means it also means things things that I think we should not pursue. Um, but but there are forms of getting closer to people and paying attention to them uh, that I think are helpful in understanding their perspective and their the way that they might um, relate to the situation they're in. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time, Bachem. Before we leave off, I do have one final question for you that we like to ask all of our guests on the podcast. And you referenced it briefly just now when you were talking about your new studies and um, this new grant that you have. But I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about what you are working on now or next. Yes. I'm working about, I'm working at, I would say, three topics. Um, one is what happens when people from different cultures um, meet. So can we change? Under what circumstances do we change? Do we need to change our emotions? Um, what happens to immigrants or bi or multiculturals? Um, do we have you know, different emotion repertoires for different situations? All of these things are things that I'm interested in in a in a big, um, there's a, a European research grant in which I and my colleagues are working on the topic of what we call emotional acculturation. But what we mean by it is really what happens when you get, when diff- people from different cultures get exposed to each other. The other research topic is is a little more modest, is what I told you, is when you tell people what we know about where emotions differ. Um, does it help them to understand each other? And does the 
does an interaction go more smoothly if people know where to probe? That's that's really another small small project, but it's a project nevertheless that we embarked on. And then there is another project where we look at um, we look at we take very seriously in that project that. Um, that we do people we do emotions together with interaction partners, and we look at couples and mothers and their teenage daughters in different cultures. And what we really look at is when they are in emotional situations, how do they respond to each other emotionally, and how do the two partners together shape the emotional interaction? Or another way of saying it, shape together shape the emotional episode. So we really look very seriously uh, at uh, our proposition that emotions are never done in a, in a vacuum, but always with other people. Um, and then we look at how they're done with other people, how they're done differently with other people in different cultures. So there we compare Belgium and, and Japan at the moment. But those are sort of the three directions in which my research is going at this at this particular moment in time. That sounds like so much going on at once, uh, research-wise. I'm really excited to read more and learn more about that work as it is completed. Um, thank you so much for, again, for taking the time to speak with me and our audience today. Um, again, the book is um, Between Us by Dr. Bacha Mosquita. And thank you so much once again. Thank you, Jolie. Um, actually, my website is bachamesquita.com. Okay, great. So all of our audience can go visit there as well. Okay. Perfect. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye.